Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome to another super exciting episode of the Video Insiders. I am Mark Donegan. I'm here with my esteemed co-host, Dror Gill. Dror, how are you doing today? Doing great, Mark. And how are you? Excellent. Excellent. You know, it's fall. It's that time of year where uh, temperatures in Phoenix drop below 85, 90, 100, 110 <laughs> <laughs> to like 70, which is heaven. So reasonable. <laughs> that's right. Too reasonable. It's a great time of year. Super excited. Lot happening in the video industry. And today we have a guest who, I guess, as the saying goes, needs no introduction. So, uh, George, shall we dive in? Yes, definitely. And uh, today we are hosting a true video insider. You might say the video insider. The video insider. <laughs> yes, I would, I would concur. So welcome to the podcast, Jan Ozer. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, Jan, it's great to have you on the show. And we're very excited today uh, to talk, of course about uh, codecs and uh, streaming and all of that. On a personal note, I have to say that I've known Jean Ozer for the past 20 or 25 years. I don't remember exactly what year it was. It could be in the previous millennium when uh, he came to Israel and gave, uh, probably it was a three-day uh, training course on streaming over the internet. And uh, it, it was really uh, uh, amazing uh, to hear him uh, at that time. And you can imagine technology was totally different. Jan, do you remember that? Yeah, that was. Uh, it was actually in 1999 because my daughter was uh, nine months old, and uh, yeah, I remember that trip. It was. Uh, it's funny because you and I got it. It had been probably 15 years since we talked, and then I got an email from you about Beamer stuff, and it's like that name. It, it rings a bell. And I went back and I, I checked my uh, my Outlook files, and yeah, there it was from that trip. What a great trip that was! My first time in Israel, and it was really just a stunning, stunning trip. That's really great. So most of our audience probably knows you, but uh, you have a very extensive uh, background in uh, technology and computers, and specifically uh, streaming video. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I came from uh, the general computer industry, started with a company called Iterated Systems in 1991, and they sold still image and fractal image compression. And we actually sold still image compression to Microsoft or Encarta. That was kind of a, a big, fun deal, flying out to Redmond and, and getting that handled. But that was still, they also did video. Um, I left them, I think, in 93 and then founded Deseo. And I was so excited about streaming video that I, my first product was called the Video Compression Sampler, where I benchmarked uh, the codecs of the day. And, and I'm sure you guys remember, nobody else does, but, you know, Video One, Cinepak, Indio. And I got four test clips, and I encoded at different data rates and different frame rates and, and with the different codecs, and then had a, a viewing program developed so people could you know, take the CD and say, okay, I've got a high-motion clip, which codec is best? And so I started <laughs> codec benchmarking back in 93, 94 on a formal for-sale basis and started writing for PC Mag in, in 94, 95, transitioned over to streaming in you know, 96 when Real Video came out and did all of PC Magazine's early testing 
with streaming video for those years. And then Parallel Track started writing books um, in 93, 94. Another Parallel Track was the training, which, as I mentioned, got me to you know pretty much around the world. I was in Israel, I think, in 99, but I was in Cairo a couple years before then to visit uh, the American University Cairo taught there. So it was, you know, have done a lot of teaching that led to online classes and then um, started self-publishing in, in the 2011, 2012. So I've been doing, you know, the, the Kodak benchmarking has been consistent, the writing, the teaching and, and the, the book writing have been kind of tracks that I've pursued since, you know, the early, uh, the early nineties. It's really interesting, Jan, because, uh, you know, you're one of the few journalists, you know, who's writing in the space about streaming video, who's also a practitioner. And I, you know, I always find that really interesting and enlightening when I'm reading your material and, uh, there's always a, a strong educational component. You write well, and at the same time, you, um, understand at a much deeper level what's actually going on. Yeah, and it's also practical. You always, you know, hands-on, uh, take the tool, run it on your computers, benchmark, you know, run the test, create the tables on, on, on your own. Uh, don't believe the hype, you know, you just test it for yourself. And I think that's that's awesome. You can't fool Jan Ozer. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not everybody believes in those objective benchmarks, and certainly not all the time. So it's interesting. You know, the thing that really hit me early on is I just hate to be wrong. And, and you know, a couple of things. Number one is you hate to be wrong. So you always test, 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 and overtest. And, you know, you, do, you just kind of have to pursue things along that line. I didn't like the whole opinion side of Codex. There were a lot of people, you know, hey, VBR is so much better than CBR. And, you know, a keyframe interval of 10 gives you so much better quality than two. And I just kind of went anti-opinion, you know, let's, let's try and back it up with whatever metrics we can. And, um, and that, that's probably been one of the, one of the benchmarks of my writing going back, you know, whether it was objective benchmarks or formalized subjective benchmarks, it was never opinion based. It was always do it this way, do it this way, compare the results and make a decision. And, um, takes a lot of time, but you know, that's kind of how I feel comfortable putting stuff out there. And then the other, you know, the other concept is you can do stuff in your own shop and then reach an opinion. But then when you write about it, it's like, holy cow, you know, I'm going to get a whole bunch of feedback coming in. I want to make sure it's right. So there's another level of concentration. And then you, you talk about it at a conference and it's like, well, holy cow, there's people who are doing this stuff that are going to be out there. You know, I'm, I try and stay public. So, you know, my articles, when they're out there, I always try and mentioned that, hey, I don't know everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm approaching this more from an analytic and testing perspective than a use perspective. And, and I think there's a nice interplay between practitioners that I'm close with and, and you know, vendors that I'm close with, including Beamer, that, that really helped me stay on track when, when my testing pushes me in a direction that might not be accurate. When you're writing and you're publishing, it's exclusively for streaming media or, or are there some other outlets that you're writing for these days? You know, the thing about streaming media is they've got, it's very structured and it's very, you know, they, they publish a certain type of article in a certain way. And my own website is Streaming Learning Center. So there's a lot of stuff I put on my website that doesn't end up anywhere else. And I'm also doing some work with OTTverse. You know, they're, they're a nice outlet for me and it's another outlet and it kind of encourages me to go my own way. And streaming media has an audience. I think Streaming Learning Center, my blog has an audience. I think OTTverse has done a really good job kind of getting a, an audience that are very passionate about technologies, but may not be readers of streaming media or streaming learning center. And I do some blogs for other companies, most notably probably Wowza. Well, Wowza does a great job. You know, as a marketer, I greatly admire their blogs. So your contributions there are definitely uh, 
noticed and seen by many. Everybody in the industry goes to the Wowza blog. And today, uh, in, in your consulting and training sessions, what is the most uh, seeked for uh, type of knowledge that uh, you see companies are lacking and are looking for outside help? Is it on uh, which codec to choose or how to operate the codec with the right parameters, how to build the ABR ladders? What's most uh, needed uh, from, from your perspective as, as you come and, uh, and help them you know, with the knowledge and, and your experience uh, in, in encoding and streaming video you know, for the past uh, 25 and more years? You know, my, my practice is kind of segmented. You know, the training that I put together is necessarily entry level. Um, and, and what I'm trying to do there for companies that are hiring people that are new to the streaming media space is to teach them a lot of the concepts, a lot of the terms, a lot of the terminology so they can accelerate their effectiveness. And that's pretty basic entry-level knowledge. But, you know, un until you know what CBR and VBR are, and concepts like that, you really lack the ability to contribute from a developmental perspective to, you know, encoders and, and even codecs. So, you know, that's the training side. And then the consulting side, you know, there's two aspects of that. One is vendor side, and that's helping different developers prove their products. And one of the first projects I did there was, was for Beamer, you know, years ago. And that is, you know, okay, how's your product supposed to work? How does it work? And then, it, hey, if it works, let's publish something and show how well it works. And if it doesn't work, then you guys fix it. And then it'll be better when you, when you take it to market. And then on the client side, for companies who are publishing video, which I think is probably the main focus of your question, I'm seeing two primary areas of focus. One is, as you said, the encoding ladder. What should it look like? And a lot of that is coming down to per title because we all love to talk about new codecs, but I think per title is a much more practical and effective way to get a lot of the benefits of updating to a new codec much more quickly. And, you know, Beamer does a nice job in providing both updated codecs and an integrated per title-like technology. So, you know, that makes your ATBC and your, your uh, H.264 codecs good choices all the time. And then the other side of that is just new codec adoption. And, you know, when do you want to adopt a new codec and what type of analytical analysis do you have to perform to make sure that you're going you're gonna to get a lot of the benefits that um, the codec vendors are, are, are trying to sell? You know, trying to translate the whole BD rate number to uh, an effective rate for you know, how much bandwidth will it save you and or how much quality of experience will it improve in the mid-range of your encoding ladder. So those are, those are kind of the, the, the questions that I'm hearing from the different audiences that I'm, that I'm serving. And the whole topic of quality, how do you measure quality using objective metrics, uh, subjective tests, you know, things like that? You know, it's really, it's really hard, you know, because we've kind of debated about this, you know, both online and in person. When I'm trying to come up with the ideal encoding parameters, I, I put a high level of trust in the different objective quality metrics, like, you know, VMF in particular, SimPlus is up there, and, and some of the others. Um, when I'm comparing codecs, I'd always try and integrate a little bit of subjective testing, because I think the metrics, I think they're good if they're measuring levels within a codec, but I think when you're comparing different codecs, they're just such apples and oranges that it's hard to put all your eggs in that basket. Well, the reason I like the Moscow State University tool, the SimPlus Video Quality Analyzer, is because you can always visualize the frames underlying the metric. So whenever you're trying to come up with uh, an analysis, I think you really have to look at the, the frames and the video that, that are beneath the metrics. Otherwise, you're at serious risk of, of drawing some wrong conclusions. How do you approach um, testing for various use cases, because I think this is always a challenge is you evaluate a Kodak and, you know, we've all seen this, right, where you'll see some study 
and there's a conclusion and, you know, and maybe it's good for one technology over another. And if it happens to be the technology we like, you know, then we're excited. But then you read it and you go, well, you know, they were looking at maybe exclusively a VOD use case or the configurations they tested were not appropriate for you know, a common use case. So you must run into this a lot. How do you think about that? Well, I, I you know, what, what I try and do is, is A, if I'm evaluating for a particular use case, I try and customize my parameters to the most relevant use case. And whatever I test, when I write about it, I try and say, okay, this works for this and not for that. You know, you can draw this conclusion from what I'm writing here, but don't draw that conclusion. You know, if I'm going to test a codec, I'm going to test an encoding ladder and not just an encoding ladder. I'm going to test an encoding ladder that's relatively customized, not only for that codec, but also for the content type. And I'm going to test the full encoding ladder, you know, from uh, 200 kilobits to, you know, whatever 95 VMAF scores are going to be. And I'm going to come up with some realistic distribution of, you know, playing or playback of, of the rungs in that encoding ladder before I draw any kind of conclusion about how much bit rate this particular codec will save you. One of the benefit of doing consulting projects is you really, if you're working a consulting project for a company who all they're doing is live, they don't care about this other stuff. So you can really customize the work that you do to say, okay, here's your live encoding ladder. So everything we do is going to be one pass and it's live. So automatically, you know, any thought about VVC or AB1 are kind of out of the window and, and VP9 is actually pretty attenuated. I think, you know, to answer your question in a summary form, I think you have to be really careful what conclusions you tell people they can draw from any research that you do, and you have to be very focused in your consulting projects to make sure that you're accurately reflecting. You know, a lot of, a lot of the codec comparisons out there, you know, they use CRF for encoding, or they use one-pass CRF, and it's like, well, that's great, but nobody uses that for production. Or they use a, a reference encoder, and it's like, well, that's great, but nobody uses a reference coder. And that's why I like the University of Moscow from a benchmarking perspective as, as compared to a lot of the more academic comparisons you see out there, because they really try and come up with the most realistic use cases and the most realistic uh, test videos. But they don't do the full encoding ladder, and that's kind of, you know, I'm trying to tell people, okay, this will save you X percent in terms of your streaming bandwidth. And to do that, you need A, a full encoding ladder, and B, some estimate of the, the rungs that are being retrieved in their normal distribution uh, pattern. And on the topic of subjective testing, you mentioned that subjective testing is available today um, as a service. And I also saw that you're using it in your benchmarks and evaluations. Um, is this something that really uh, revolutionizes the, the way that you can um, evaluate um, video and video encoding and video quality that it's available kind of as a service as a commodity that anybody can use and you don't need to you know bring your own people and do the test and follow the protocols etc you can get it kind of off the shelf you know subjectify is a great way to at least do some quick and dirty tests but i don't think it's you know the end all be all answer but i think it's additional evidence that you need to take into account and some of the work i did with vnova with lcevc we we engaged a group out of italy that did more formal standard-based, you know, A-B type of testing. You know, if I'm writing an article that I'm self-funding, I'll do some rounds with Subjectify because it's affordable and 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 I like having the results. If you're doing a, a much bigger study to try and draw some conclusions for a client, then I think it's worthwhile going to a more formal type of testing environment. Subjectify is a service that the University of Moscow um, started. And what they do is they distribute videos for people to view on their... Um, computer monitors and 
you know, or rate them on a, you know, which one's better than the other. So they, they look at two, you rate the one that's better. And some people criticize that because they don't, they don't know how far the monitor is away. They don't know what the size of the monitor is. But of course, you know, in the real world, you don't know that stuff either. Um, so there's always criticism one way or the other. But uh, as I said, I like having it as another, you know, another leg of the stool that you're, you're going to use to draw the conclusions from. Yeah, it is very, very difficult, very challenging. And, you know, at Beamer, we developed our own system for subjective testing, mass scale subjective testing, which is based on Amazon Mechanical Turk. So we distribute side by side viewing uh, software to a lot of people and we pay them for this task and they view the videos and they say which one is better. And then we had to introduce all kinds of um, tools that will help us verify that the results are really um, accurate and reliable. For example, one of the tools is that some of the videos we show them are exactly the same on both sides, uh, but still they, they are forced to finally select. And if the selection is different from normal, it's not a 50-50 left and right split as you would expect, then we know there is a preference to one side. And this could be because of your, uh, the way your, your monitor is located, you know, or lighting that you have or things like that. And the second thing we do, some of the pairs have one video that's uh, extremely degraded. I mean, way beyond the degradation that we're testing for. And this is just to verify that users are actually looking at the video and not just, you know, clicking randomly left and right just to get it over with and get paid. Uh, and if people fail on too many of those uh, obvious uh, videos, then we don't use their... Um, uh, their test result at all. So it's really uh, complex, you know, and uh, challenging uh, to do a full-scale, you know, subjective uh, video testing that eventually is reliable and, you know, a number that you can say, yeah, this is the ground truth. And then, you know, you can go and compare the objective metrics to that. Why didn't you guys take that um, commercial? Because, I, I, you know, I was actually looking for that service at some point because I, I read some of the stuff you had written about it. What, what kept you from trying to launch that as a product? Yeah, it's, I think it's more of an issue of, of focus uh, for the company. You know, we, we're trying to focus on the technology we develop, on the codex, on uh, using the quality measure itself to optimize videos. And we thought that, you know, this internal tool we developed, yes, we could source it to others, but it kind of would take us um, off track. So, uh, you know, I, I do agree that uh, it, it is a challenge. And from the feedback we got, you know, it's, it's a big challenge, and a lot of companies are looking for a solution for, for that, you know, for, for scalable, affordable, you know, massive uh, user testing of video quality. So you've recently published an um, extensive series, I think a three-part series, on the codex used by YouTube, and I thought that might be an interesting thing to discuss. Can you give us a short overview of your findings? Yeah, it was, it was kind of an interesting way that some of the publishing I do and teaching that I do influences the editorial direction. So I'm sitting around writing a lesson about the affordability of codex, you know, putting together a decision structure on how to evaluate new codex. And I said, well, what is YouTube doing? You know, when are they using AV1? When are they using VP9? So I started looking at different videos. And, you know, you imagine with YouTube, there, you know, like any business, there's going to be a pyramid and there's going to be the tippy top of the pyramid probably has maybe tens of millions of views. And then the vast majority of vid videos on the bottom probably have, as you know, a lot of the videos I put out there, I'm lucky if I get a couple hundred. Um, and I'm sure that's pretty consistent. So which codex are they using and when? 
And that's going to give some high measure of the affordability of that particular codec. And what I discovered was that um, VP9 was kicking in a lot earlier than I thought, and that may be the result of the the Google um, hardware encoding chip that they put in uh, in place that, that does VP9 but not AV1. So any video that was viewed under, say, 3,000 times was typically going to be encoded with H.264, 3,500 to to several million was going to be encoded with VP9, and then anything over around three to five million was going to be encoded with AV1. And, you know, that was a pretty interesting discovery because if YouTube can't afford AV1, then, you know, with, with the, the, the hundreds of thousands and millions of views that they get, then what does that mean for the average website who may get, you know, where a good video could be a, a couple hundred thousand? That was the first article. The second article, you know, someone sent in a, a note about what about uh, 4K, and then I looked at the 4K results, and then I found that there were no streams encoded with H.264 beyond 1080p, and that makes perfect sense. And I only saw VP9, but not AV1. And then the third article, somebody emailed in about a, um, a tool called... Um, YouTube DL? Yeah, exactly. And then YouTube DL was like, the Rosetta Stone, it's like, holy cow, I can see exactly what they're doing instead of trying to guess by, you know, by using the Stats for Nerds feature. And that really, you know, if you're, if you're going to read one of these three articles, this is the third article. And what that showed was that uh, YouTube is using, you know, for, again, for very, very high volume, the music videos, the, the Tom Cruise and, and Top Gun 2 trailer, you know, they're, they're encoding full encoding letters for AV1, VP9, and H.264, but again, with H.264 only going up to 1080p. Do you have any insights, because you said something very important that uh, at, at this moment, at least publicly, as far as we know, Argos does not support AV1, but it does support H.264 and VP9. Is the insight that once Argos, you know, the next generation comes out, which I, I think they have said they're working on, do you think, Jan, that then at that point, you know, it's cost effective and then they can deliver. Obviously there's some device consideration that they have to think about because there are target devices that won't support AV1. Do you, do you have any insights there? Like, will that flip the switch so that then everything will just be encoded? You know, what was surprising to me in the first article was how frequently they were using VP9 because it was my impression. I hadn't done a formal study in the past, but I had looked at it before and I saw VP9 usage at a much higher view count range. So I think that the Argos VCU has really accelerated VP9 usage because I think it probably makes it much more affordable. At 1080p, AV1 was around 50% more efficient than H.264. And if they're only using it for view counts in excess of 3.5 million, that tells you that it's still very, very expensive to encode. But as soon as the encoding cost comes down, you would think that they would accelerate and, and, and broaden its usage to much lower view counts. You know, when I'm asked about AV1 adoption, I feel very, very confident. And I think most of the industry lines up behind this view that for the browser, AV1 is absolutely the next gen codec. There's no debate. Now, the question then is, is how will AV1 displace HEVC on connected televisions, game consoles, you know, all the hardware devices? Uh, will it be a complement? Will it kind of fade over time? But when you consider that to support YouTube, you have to have AV1. That means all Samsung TVs, LG TVs, Sony TVs, they all support AV1. 
We were just at a Mobile World Congress and popped a USB flash uh, drive with uh, 4K and 8K AV1 encoded files right into a Samsung TV. It played beautifully. Yeah, so that's on the device side. But Jean, do you see outside of Google and Netflix a streaming VP9 uh, to the browser, do you see much usage of, uh, of VP9? I think for AV1, probably too early, but uh, VP9 uh, used by other uh, content uh, providers? You know, I really don't. You know, I th- again, the pyramid that I mentioned, you know, you've got the tippy top and you've got the companies that we've, we've mentioned a couple of times now using it. Beyond that, most of the major OTT houses who are one stop below that, you know, they're going to use HEVC if they've got 4K content with HDR and the rest they're using H.264. You know, I've seen the bit moving numbers as, as, as I'm sure you guys have, and that shows, I think, you know, 9 to 11 percent. But um, I just don't see it in the companies that I've worked with. I think they're looking at it, but, you know, I've done the analysis. And aside from what we saw with YouTube, um, it wasn't as compelling as what I saw from YouTube's numbers when I when I kind of compared. But I was using, you know, VP9 out of the box with FFmpeg. Well, they're almost certainly using a different version because they're using the hardware version. But um, I wasn't getting a result that was telling me that I needed to use VP9. So the compression efficiency advantage over H.264 was not large enough in your tests? That's correct. You know, I think you save most of your bandwidth in the top rung or two. And I think, whereas HEVC makes a very positive uh, improvement in the top rung quality at, at, at much lower bit rates, you know, VP9 was more over the entire encoding ladder, which can improve your, your viewing experience in the mid-rungs, but it's not going to save you as much from a bandwidth perspective. You know, the thing everybody needs to, to realize is that, you know, we think that VP9 is a codec, but it's also a codec standard, and there are multiple codec versions out there. And it's very possible that the Argos implementation that Google has done puts out a, a more efficient bitstream than what you get from from FFmpeg. I mean, I know that your ATBC codec is, is much more efficient than X.265. So anything that we're talking about here, you've got to realize that it's going to vary from, from codec implementation to codec implementation. But what I saw with the VP9 codec and FFmpeg was just not that compelling from a, from a bitrate savings perspective. You can compare, you know, the FFmpeg VP9 to the YouTube VP9 if you upload the video to YouTube. Of course, you don't control the bitrate that they'll use for VP9, but you can you know, download the file and then, you know, use the same bitrate on your software encoder. That's a great point. I got a question that related to some of those points uh, just yesterday on my website, and that's something that I may want to track down But for exactly the, the analysis that you put out there. There's also something that's interesting about VP8 versus VP9. So I've been recently involved a bit in uh, WebRTC and, you know, RTC type applications. And a lot of the video conferencing platforms are using VP8. And it's very interesting that routinely what I'm hearing is, is that in testing from a lot of different people who've reported this, that I've heard this from, that the benefits of VP9 in these ultra low latency, these lower bit rates uh, kind of applications like video conferencing, the benefit is not that great in terms of bit rate efficiency. And yet the compute complexity for VP8 is much less. You know, it's a less advanced codec. And, and that really gets to the point you made before about testing for particular use cases. You know, it's great to say you get a BD rate benefit of X, but, you know, what about for the particular use case that you just described or any other particular use case? You really need to test as closely to the parameters you're going to be using as, as, as you can. 
Right, low delay. Um, you you can't use a look ahead. Maybe no B frames. You know, of course, it affects the efficiency of the the codec. One of the things, just circling back around to AV1 and and talking about hardware, like with Argos, you know, you mentioned Xilinx has announced AV1 for um, FPGA. And then you have uh, NetInt that's going to be introducing their AV1 solution in an ASIC. And, uh, you know, who knows? Presumably there could be others that that are working on solutions. So I think it is going to be very, very interesting as we think about this, you know, in doing some of that testing for folks or, or giving them some advice or are people starting to ask the question, you, you know, do we need to start looking at hardware or... You know, I, th- I think it was David Ronka who who put out that chart that showed essentially that codec complexity was going out the roof. Yeah, that chart is pretty famous now. Yeah. So I have tested VVC for for Streaming Media Magazine. That came out last December. And it was about, um, I guess, 1.5x complexity as compared to AV1, 25x complexity as compared to uh, X.264. So I, I'm not working with any uh, VVC vendors right now. I am about to start testing EVC, assuming I can get some assistance from the developers of the spec to kind of come up with the best um, script to produce it that's kind of compatible or at least um, the equivalent of the scripts that we used when we tested VVC. And if I, if I do test EVC, which is on the calendar for streaming media in the next couple of weeks, I'll, I'll update my test for VVC, the Fraunhofer implementation, as well as, um, you know, ATVC and X.264. So it'll be my chance to look at how much more complex it is to encode EVC, which shouldn't be as, as bad as VVC. And, you know, just to get an update on where Fraunhofer is after one year. I was pretty impressed with their technology. You know, one of the things that's really kind of happened with AV1 and, and the Alliance for Open Media is how political it's getting to get codecs approved and codecs successful these days as compared to, you know, 20 years ago where the H.264 was going to succeed no matter what the royalty cost, because, you know, hey, broadcast was broadcast. The codec market has gotten really crowded and really confusing. And, you know, at a time of very dynamic change from an industry perspective as well. So it's a challenging time to launch a new codec. And uh, after what happened with the HEVC, uh, because of all the royalty issues, it was very late uh, to the market. And today, as you mentioned, uh, mostly used when you have 4K or HDR content. So, you know, we talked about technical evaluation of EVC and VVC, but uh, what do you think are their chances to succeed in the market as, you know, standards by the MPEG committee, which might have or might not have the same issues, you know, with royalties and patents and um, patent pools as as HEVC did? I think um, a couple of things. I'm sure you guys saw the the Rethink report. I I like the work that Rethink does. They talk to a lot of people and and they get a lot of good data before they draw their conclusions. And they were very bullish on VVC starting in the the 2022 to 2024 timeframe. So I think that's an input in anybody trying to benchmark or make their own evaluation about how successful the new codex will be should at least take a look at the the report, the, the executive summary, if you don't want to spend five grand and get the report itself. So I, I think a lot of things have changed since even HEVC. Number one, because of HEVC, I think there's a feeling out there, and this was, again, not me talking, but more David Ronka talking about companies saying, we're not going to start to adopt your technology until we understand what the, what the technical terms are going to look at, specifically the royalty cost. So, you know, I think that's going to delay everything. And I also think that 
you know, the whole broadcast streaming uh, dichotomy is flipped. You know, 20 years ago, as we say in the States, you know, broadcast was the dog and streaming was the tail. And now, you know, broadcast is the tail and streaming is the dog. You know, there's three major markets for, for viewing streaming video, browser, mobile, and living room. And browser is, is, is the, you know, entirely the Alliance for Open Media. So, you know, they, they haven't incorporated HEBC playback into the browsers, and, and I'm, I'm guessing they won't for VVC or EBC or, or any other standard-based codec. They're going to you know, promote their own codecs. And then from a content perspective, I'm going to buy a smart TV because I know it plays Netflix, I know it plays YouTube, I know it plays Hulu, I know it plays Prime. And to the extent that those companies choose a codec, it, it, it exerts a very strong influence on the people who are building those devices, whether it's OTT, smart TVs, or STVs, to implement their their codec technologies. And VVC doesn't have anything like that in terms of, you know, if I'm Samsung, there's no content company telling me, hey, I need to include VVC in my TVs, otherwise it's not going to play, or it's not going to play in 8K. Right. And if Comcast, for example, decides to use VVC on their cable network, they will support it in the set-top box. Yes. But I mean, it's, it's, you guys are closer to the business models of, of a Comcast, much closer than I am. I mean, I'm more familiar with how Netflix makes money and, and how the more OTT devices make money. And, you know, probably I tend to think that's the whole world where it's only, you know, a big part of the whole world. And there are other sub-markets that are very, very vibrant that, that aren't included in that. And Comcast is certainly one of them. But, you know, in terms of codec adoption, general purpose, again, in the three markets I talked about, at least for OTT-type living room viewing, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of momentum to, to drive the support of the MPEG-based codecs. What have you guys heard, you know, about AV1 and HDR support? I know technically can support it, but until it's in the Dolby spec, it, it's, it's not going to be able to take over for HEVC. I mean, what do you think is happening in that regard? So I can tell you that that is not going to be a uh, factor in the near future, i.e. that work's being done. And, you know, that's not going to be a reason for why AV1 will not be adopted by a premium content owner. Now, the sequence of, you know, the various standards, HLG, HDR10, Dolby Vision, that has to be worked out, especially on the Dolby side. Uh, well, really, uh, only on the Dolby side. So I, I can't comment on whether Dolby Vision, but in terms of HDR support and um, what's required for premium, that work is going to be done. It's being worked on right now. I only heard about, you know, yeah, we're going to go VVC, obviously, from... You know, telcos, MSOs, those traditional broadcasters on cable, satellite. I mean, maybe terrestrial, because now ATSC 3 is supporting HEVC. Maybe ATSC 4 will be VVC. I don't know. But that's kind of the a traditional market that says, yeah, you know, we've always done MPEG codecs and uh, we'll continue to do MPEG codecs. But the problem is that even these traditional broadcasters are also going OTT. So why would they support... Uh, two different uh, workflows, one going direct to the TV and one going to their set of boxes. So that's a big question. And then on the other hand, you know, we'll wait for your benchmark results, uh, Jean, but uh, as far as I understand, still, if you talk about AV1 versus VVC and not, you know, AV2, which is might be sometime in, in the future, uh, but right now AV1 and VVC are both released, then VVC is still... Um, more efficient than AV1. I don't know if it's by 10, 15, 20%, uh, but maybe that's not going to be enough. I don't know. 
I saw 11% when I looked at it uh, in December of 2020. But that was, again, that was CRF-based encoding, not 2-pass VBR, which, which is what everybody is going to use for a, a VOD use case. And, and that's very early stages for the Fraunhofer uh, VVC codec. I wanted to just float a topic that we probably were going to get to. Beamer wrote a great blog post, I want to say, a couple of years ago called Video Codecs in 2020. And it talked about the fact that all of the codecs are being built upon a, a similar base of, uh, of building blocks. But there's a parallel track coming, and that's the whole um, AI-driven codec. And I know as a codec vendor, that's something that you've got to be looking at drawer. And I just, you know, Mark, I know you're out in the industry a lot more than I am. You know, what are you guys hearing and seeing? And what's your sense of when that's going to become a reality? So I think it's two phases. The first one is using AI tools for encoding. So you're still using the regular encoding standards and framework, you know, the block-based uh, compensated encoding. And uh, you're still using the transforms and motion estimation and all of that. But uh, you're using AI for a lot of the decisions because the encoder... Even though it's standard, of course, the decode side and the bitstream is standardized, but how you do the encoding is not. And there are a lot of decisions that you need to make. And the more sophisticated the codec standard, the more decisions and the more options that you have for different um, encoding modes, partitioning the frame into uh, different uh, blocks of different sizes and shapes. Um, and there's a lot of decisions that need to be made. And using uh, AI and uh, deep learning and neural networks can really help in those uh, decisions and uh, give more optimal solution uh, while you're still in the same framework as the current encoder. But you, you, of course, need to balance the performance of using those tools, you know, with the overall performance of, uh, of your encoder. And then the next phase, which is kind of end-to-end -end neural network-based encoding, I think it's really in, in the far future, both in terms of feasibility and obviously in terms of its um, complexity. So that's, I think, I, you know, I don't really like to guess into the future because as someone said, predictions are very hard, especially when they relate to the future. But I would say this is like seven to 10 years uh, out. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, I think the tools, and this is where it gets a, a little bit confusing because, you know, AI is thrown around um, very liberally by the industry and by vendors and, and developers, I, I guess, trying to catch the AI wave. But in reality, you know, a lot of the what's being called AI for the tools, it's just there's a pre-processing module and there's some I don't know, there's something that barely can even be associated with machine learning or whatever that's going on. And, and, and that's what's really happening. And usually it's for some sort of enhancement, you know, super resolution comes to mind. Um, you know, there are some interesting things I think happening with like pseudo HDR. And so these are enhancements that have real impact. In other words, the user, does feel like, wow, this is a better picture. Is it real AI that's actually happening? That's, you know, real uh, artificial intelligence algorithms that are producing that result? Sometimes, yes, maybe, but, you know, usually not. Uh, in terms of the codec, I completely agree. A full AI uh, codec drawer. Um, there's some interesting companies out there 
and Jan, I'm sure, you know, you, you know, of some of these, I'm sure they approach you probably looking for some guidance or, or looking for some feedback, but you know, we talk about the complexity in these standards based codecs. So, you know, AV1, VVC, I just can't even imagine, you know, implementing at any sort of scale, a full AI driven codec. What's intriguing to me is is the uh, video compression for machines. So 10 years ago, 100% of you know compressed video was being consumed by humans. In in 10 years, it could be 25%, with the rest being consumed by you know cars and factory automation equipment and restocking equipment. So it's you've got a whole bunch of use cases that are much more limited and much more seemingly focused and trainable. And I just wonder how that's going to influence the acceleration of these artificial intelligence-based codecs, because if, if all you need to do is understand what an edge is and estimate height and distances, then you wonder, are you better off trying to make H.264 do that more efficiently or design from the start to come up with a way to look at that and, and, and represent it so that a machine viewing that can, can take that information and, and draw some conclusions from it? That's the thing that tells me that artificial intelligence-based codecs are going to happen sooner. But I just think there's a use case coming that's very, very different than what we've seen before that may not only make it easier to develop a complete artificial intelligence-driven codec, but also a lot more motivation um, than what we're seeing just for human consumption. I think that's a very interesting uh, use case that you're bringing up. And the challenge here is that human eyes, human perception is basically the same for all humans. Okay, some have like golden eyes and some are colorblind, whatever, but basically all of us perceive video in a very similar way. But when you look at how the machines perceive video and what kind of features they're trying to extract from the video, that really differs by the application. And this means that the codec that you need to build for those machines for a particular application um, will be different than you know a different machine uh, learning um, application. So it will really mean that you will need kind of a, an array of possibilities, an array of codecs or encoding mechanisms, each one targeted for your specific uh, use case, right? Because then it will be optimal for that use case. You can't have one that's optimal for, you know, any machine algorithm uh, out there, right? Because each one is looking for uh, different features and each one has different amount of redundancy that you can remove without that feature being affected. When I wrote about video compression for machines, I wrote about a custom silicon from Tesla. I don't remember specifically what it does, but why would you want to use H.264 to figure out how far away a cupboard is if, you know, there's a better way to do it? Yeah, if that's all you, you need to do with the video, of course, you don't need all those bits. You know, but you've got all these cameras, you've got, this, you've got all this existing technology ecosystem that kind of supports that. So the question is, what direction do you approach that from? And if I'm doing a piece of factory automation equipment, I can either take VVC and kind of deconstruct that and make it work for me, or I can say, hey, let me just, let me start from scratch. And I don't know what would be easier or what would be faster or what would be cheaper in the long run, given the, the IP considerations. Trying to guess which codecs were going to succeed three or four years ago, very little of what we were incorporating was the whole concept of video compression for machines. And that's, that's very different now. Very interesting. Well, video is super exciting. It's hard. 
as, as we always yeah. remind ourselves. <laughs> Super you know? hard. You heard it here first. <laughs> Video is hard. Yes, yes, yes. Don't, don't believe the hype. It's not getting easier, folks. But it's fun. It's it's a fun it's a fun place to be. Yeah. Well, Jan, you know, thank you so much for joining us. And I, I you know, Dror, we have to have Jan back. I think we need to make this a little more regular. Yeah, Jan, maybe uh, when you have some uh, results on EVC, VVC, and compare those to AV1 and H264 and uh, HEVC, that would be a good time to to have you back. And uh, I think that's uh, something that uh, a lot of our listeners are interested in. And uh, in general, I think they learned a lot from this uh, discussion. And we'd like to thank you very much for coming on the Video Insiders today. You know, I love both you guys. And, you know, I've been listening to Selected Episode for years now because you get very, very good um, people and they talk about very relevant things. So I'm glad to contribute. That's great. Well, thanks for coming on, Jan. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent. 